Hey gang, thanks for listening to part two of my epic, epic conversation with the great Steve Lillywhite. Now this conversation was done about three or four weeks after part one. And so if you hear something that's familiar or similar kind of themes or words or stories are used, there's not a lot of that, but just in case, that's why, because we did this a little bit later. Now in this one, we cover, let me, I wrote down the list here. First of all, we get into Aretha Franklin. That's how we left the last episode. I think this is one of the most underrated covers ever. I mean, what's better than the Stones being the Stones, Aretha singing on their music, and Steve producing? This is such a classic. Then we get into the Chameleons, Crowded House, The Laws. That's an interesting one everyone wanted to know about. Thompson Twins, uh, Talking Heads, XTC. Then we get into a little bit more U2 talk. There's some Ultravox. And then there's some Pretty in Pink. Uh, I'm sorry, Pretty in Pink. Some Psychedelic Furs. Now, you might be thinking there's a name, a fairly big name, that is not listed on this list. And that's the Dave Matthews Band. I have some regrets around that. Here's what happened. So I was purposely saving the Dave Matthews Band till the end. Because there's actually a pretty a lot of well-documented drama, unfortunately, involved between Steve and the band. So I thought, well, let's get to that last. Let's cover all the fun stuff first, and then we'll close it out with Dave, rather than, I don't know, eating up too much time talking about Dave early on and then not getting to some of the fun stuff. Well, by the end, Steve was sort of talked out, and understandably, completely understandably. So he felt like that story has already been told in other articles and didn't want to get into it, and I understand. I regret, though, that I didn't at least ask some questions around songs. I could have and should have done that. I sort of just put all of Dave Matthews' band on the side, and I should have at least asked about Crash Into Me and Jimmy Thing and some of these great songs that Steve had a hand in producing. I wish now that I had done that, but I didn't. So if hopefully anyone, everyone doesn't feel too, you know, besotted by the fact that the DMB is not in you know, uh, included in this conversation, but just go Google it. You can hear the whole story for yourself. Now, when we did this conversation, Steve was in Jakarta. I don't know if he lives there. I don't know if he was visiting there. I know it's part of Asia. I know it's near Bali where he was last time, but anyway, that's where Steve was this time. We left off last time talking about Aretha Franklin and you right. were, you sort of dangled it out there that it was one of the coolest, you know, recording experiences of your life. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, it was, um, we just finished, uh, basically on, on the Dirty Work album with the Stones. I was brought in by Mick Jagger, apparently. Mick Jagger had gone to Elton John and said to Elton John, look, who are the hot producers of the time? And basically I was on the list. So eventually I got the job, but it was through, because, uh, you know, Elton John would always be, buy, he always buys every, records in so. top yes. 10 every, Very every, yeah every week so uh so he's always up to date so my name was mentioned and basically i got the job now the moment i sort of walked into the studio i realized that it was much cooler to be in the keith richards camp than to be in the mick jagger camp which was basically a camp of one right. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, interesting Okay. No, it well, it wasn't a camp of one, but it was like Keith. Keith was very much the sort of alpha male Mm. at that Mm. point, you know. So, so I sort of hung out with Keith. So after the album, it's uh, 
Keith invited me. Keith knew Aretha, obviously, mm-hmm. and was invited to go and record Aretha to do the song Jumping Jack Flash for the movie. And he needed someone to help him. So he said, like, you come along. So I I, I came along to help him out with the production. And um, and we had a great time. But it was, it was in Detroit in August, one of the hottest places on the planet. It was in a recording studio that had about, that I remember seeing three film crews. There was the movie film crew, filming the movie for Jumping Jet Flash. There was the music video film crew. And then there was like some documentary people walking around. So it was absolutely crazy. Add to that the fact that Aretha would not allow us to have the air conditioning on because (laughs) the air conditioning was was bad for her throat. So it was sweltering, sticky, sweaty, hot, so many bodies. Uh, Although she was chain smoking cools, you know. Really? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But but you know that was that was not bad. But the air conditioning. Uh, yeah. But she was abs- she was absolutely brilliant. I, I remember at the end of the song, she does these sort of vocal acrobats, mm-hmm. and uh, and she was she was she started doing that. And then she stopped, mm-hmm. and she said, "Okay, let me do that again." And I went, "That was brilliant." Quick, 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 save that. This was back in the days of analog Mm -hmm. recording where you had to change tracks and you only had a finite amount of tracks. So so we swapped tracks and we went back. She said, punch me in for that. But I didn't want to punch in because it would have meant losing what she'd just done, which I thought was great. We went back there and and she and we so we did it on another track and she stopped again. I went, that was even better. My God, quick, hold that. You know, so anyway, and then the third time. She said, punch me in again, but the, but I didn't, but I wanted to keep it. Yeah. We went to the, the third track and we went and she did it even better. And of course, then carried on. She knew exactly when she was right mm-hmm. with what she wanted, you know, mm-hmm. and that was great because I was so used to singers who, who didn't really know what they were doing. And sometimes they would do something brilliant, but think it was bad yeah. and want to repeat, you know, and then get worse. And you're like, pulling your hair out and it's like, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you go down all those sort of paths as a producer. And so you really need to be able to, to gauge how to allow an artist to really shine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when to be involved. It was really fascinating. And of course, Did she's such a great piano player as well. She is. Did you, I'm, I've always been curious, someone like her, do you get the feeling that she's so, uh, confident and controlled in her talent that she can just show up the day of and like, what am I doing today? Oh, you want me to sing Jumpin' Jack Flash? Okay, no problem. Or do you think she puts a lot of force? And, and that's not a criticism of her or anybody else who does that, who approaches their career that way. I think most great artists do. Well, I, I okay, let me say, <laughs> this sounds a bit weird what I'm going to say, but mm-hmm. but I don't believe Prince was one of the greats Ooh. because to be defined in my head as one of the greats, you have to have an element of self-editing. Mm-hmm. Now, Prince had no self-editing. He thought everything that he did was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So what you get is these little nuggets of absolute gold mm-hmm. amongst this sort of, wash of just bad jamming Mm -hmm. you know 
Was he talented? Of course, he was incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. But for me, you need to be able to analyze your yourself in in any way possible. Yeah. And then so 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 to answer your question, I mean, I'm sure she did. Plus the fact that she was a woman. Yeah. True. And in the music business, I mean, you have to be so much tougher yeah, to be a yeah. woman because if you're a man and you're tough, you're a good businessman. If you're a woman and you're tough, you're a bitch. Yeah. And that's the sad thing about, about business in general. You know, yeah. it's like women, women do get, it's bad for them. And I've yeah. seen it and I've seen that's it a fair. lot. You know, you know, I think that's a really underrated cover. Um, I, I love it. It reminds me of the stuff that Keith was doing. Keith's solo career, especially the Talk is Cheap era or yeah. whatever, so good. That's the missing Stones music versus Mix, which is sort of spotty and hit and miss. Well, well, Mix Mix solo music is he really wants to to to, to follow what's successful. Ah, uh, makes sense. So, you know, yeah. I mean, it's lead singer syndrome. I've seen that with a lot of lead singers. Mm -hmm. They you know, they, they want to be current. Yeah. Whereas Keith absolutely has no problem with, with just mining the blues mm -hmm. for whatever gold he can find yeah. in that genre, you know, whereas Mick, you know, it's like, you know, and I, and I get that with other singers, they want to be, you know, because I maybe because they're in the front, mm -hmm. you know, that they're, they're the ones who, mm -hmm. who ultimately, you know, yeah. succeed or fail with it. So they want to, to you know, to have the the current crop, crop crop of people like I could see that I hadn't yeah. thought of it before, but you're totally right. Um, yeah. Okay, in keeping with keeping kicking off these conversations with the ones you don't get asked about quite as much, I want to talk yeah. about the chameleons because oh I love the chameleons. I had John yeah. Lever on here, and he died a few a couple few months later. It was so sad, oh, and yeah. there's a lot of drama in that band between everybody. Yeah. What was your experience working with them? Well, it was very, very, um, it was, it was very brief, you oh. know, because I did a single with them and I, I, I think I Which did Which one? Single. Well, I did In Shreds. Okay, that's that's the one that sounds like you. So that yeah, it does sound like me actually. Yes, yeah. it does. But also, I remember a song called "The Fan and the Bellows." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that song? I do. Yeah, I, 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 which was great. I remember thinking that was really, really good, um, and I did record that. But 
But it was, they were signed to, by my friend Annie Rosebury. She signed them to see. And, um, and I, they didn't really take off in the way that a major label wants an artist. I mean, they were a little bit, you know, I think there was some talk of you two, an aggressive type singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had two guitarists. I remember one was like more punky. One was more heavy metal. Um, but... I mean, there's I, there's not much I can remember about the comedians, okay. but but yeah, it's I have listened back. Uh, I've gone down a little memory lane thing because you know now I'm virtually retired. Right. Uh, I I can now listen back to my own records and not twitch and not feel like bad. About I love it. them. They I've always described them as a more masculine Cure, and I don't mean that as a knock. If if, if the Cure weren't wearing makeup and they were more like tough guys. That's kind of right. how I imagine chameleons. Yeah. And um, I just think they're special and one of the most underrated bands ever. In fact, yeah. one of my listeners lives in Southern California and Mark Burgess, the lead singer, is playing yeah. in his backyard at the beginning of August. And he contacted me because he knows I'm a big fan. He said, I'd really love it if you could come out here. So I'm going to go out to L.A. and see Mark Burgess oh. play in this guy's backyard next month please, please give mark my best i will, mark I, my, will. I, I i got on well with him and i thought it was just a very brief part of both our careers you know got it um, okay yeah but yeah uh, they sound like a band that would have been tailor-made for you those those loud guitars and the epic drums and everything they sound just like your style yeah um, well that my 80s my my yeah. uh, early 80s style that's I true tried that was to, you you know it was the marshall crenshaw thing that made me realize that if you have a style it can date you, mm. you know. So I, I tried to then, after the Marshall Records, decided that that sometimes you don't need to have those huge drums on every fucking record you do. Yeah, but that's what so, you know. There you go. That's do. life. You you learn. You learn. You do, but oh, that's why I love you so much. Um, okay, <laughs> let me. I, now, one of my favorite bands of all time is Credit House. I think oh, yeah. you came up on the Time on Earth album, right? Do you remember yeah. what you did with them? Yes, I recorded, and I can't even remember what the songs were now. And I tried to find them. It was, yeah, it was uh, Ethan Johns had done a couple of songs. I did two or three songs. I'll look them and, up. Yeah. Um, there was one very, very weird song called Transit Lounge. I love Transit Lounge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Her, 
I remember the drummer had, had recorded all these weird um, sounds in the transit lounge. And it was, yeah, actually, it's, it was really great, but completely nothing like, you know, weather with you or, or, uh-huh. or singer-songwriter no. thing. <laughs> One thing I got from, from Neil Finn was that if you'd said to me before that that he, you know, I always put him down as a sort of real songsmith. You know, the sort of guy who comes in with finished songs because they all sounded so wonderfully finished. Mm -hmm. But I don't know whether he changed when I worked with them, but, but, you know, he didn't have the lyrics finished, Mm. you know, because I always thought, you know, there's two sorts of of songwriters. There's the sort of Elvis Costello, Shane McGowan, who always have their lyrics written, you know, and then there's the Bono and the David Byrne and the Dave Matthews who, who make the lyrics up as they go along. And um, and I always thought Neil Finn would be the former, the sort of person who would come in, you know, because he was such a songsmith. They were such great songs. But but no, he was a chancer like the rest of us. You know, wow, (laughs) that surprises me, too. That's kind of a that, as you know, that I think that album was meant to be a solo album. But when Paul Hester committed suicide, He got kind of nostalgic about putting the band back together and calling it a yeah. credit house album. Did it when you were working on it? Were you in a studio with them? Was did it feel like a band chemistry, yes, or was it, it more just no, a Neil thing? That's what I like to always, you know. That's where I'm at my best. Even when I'm working with a solo artist and I have to bring in session people, mm-hmm. I like to try and form a band in the studio mm-hmm. to make it seem like that because that's that's the best way I work, you know, when it, when it feels like a band okay. and obviously a real band is better than a band for the day. <laughs> yes. Very but, true. But, you know, it's, um, but no, it did feel like a real band. And I remember Neil would be, he brought slippers to the studio. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> so he would put his slippers on while recording. Really? Oh, yes. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, okay. But, we got to talk about, Oh, what yeah. were you going to say? I was just going to say there was. There's not much more I can say other than okay. he was a lovely man. You know. Okay, we have to talk about the laws.
Oh, so working our way back into the bigger stuff here. I'm sure you get yeah. asked about the laws all the time. Well, I, a, yeah. I mean, they've. It's why? Young, why did they disappear? What's going on? It's the only band in history that has released one album and then a box set. <laughs> <laughs> a box set of the same songs, almost. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it was really, really crazy. It was, you know, it was at the time when, you know, you there, there, there was a lot of money around for recording. So, um, so we did, you know, so if Lee Lee Mavers said, I want, it's not working, he went back to Andy McDonald at Go Discs and Andy said, okay, what do you want to change? He said, producer, change producer. So I was, I think I was about number seven or eight. Really? Of producers who they'd worked with. You know, each time before me, it had fallen apart and um, it was about to fall apart uh, on my record. You know, it was literally, you know, uh, the, the record company said, look, you know, it hasn't worked with all the, you know, all these yeah. big name producers, you know, me being the last one. It's got to be the problem has got to probably be with Lee or the band. It's cost so much money. Um, do you think you have enough for an album? I went, well, we have a couple of things that haven't been finished, but I think I can get my way around that. I think I can finish the album for you. And he goes, okay, I'm going to send the band back to Liverpool. So I basically finished things to what I honestly, I try and, and, you know, I don't really care necessarily what the record company think. I want the band's vision to be what they want, you know. And so I, I really, really tried to finish it in how I would interpret Lee's. And it wasn't the band. It was Lee, you know, uh, Lee's vision. So, you know, I, I, I put together the album and I thought, that sounds like the Lars. That sounds pretty good. That's and that was it. And of course, you know, the album came out and people loved it and, and and Lee, of course, in his wonderfulness, decided that it wasn't finished, uh, you know, and th- th- that it wasn't what he had in his mind. Right. I think he probably, and I don't know, so, you know, I'm not, this is true or not, but I feel like sometimes when people have an acid trip, something gets burned into their thing and it they never are quite the same again. I mean, it happened with the the the, the founder of, of of Fleetwood Mac, a man called Peter Green. Peter Green Way right. back in the day, he had this acid trip, and he was never the same again. Mm-hmm. Um, he left the band, but anyway, I think Lee had done something like that. I don't know, mm-hmm. but he had in his head this absolute blueprint of the album, and if that blueprint at any point in the making was never wasn't what he said it was. He wanted to start again. Now, I would like to think that that I, you know, that that, that I I did my best to, sure. to, to make that blueprint. What you know, because I honestly don't care what the record company say. Right. I want because at the end of the day, the artist has to play their album yeah. to their families and stuff. But there was a funny story that I was um, great mates with Johnny Marr at the time, so. After the album came out, you know, Johnny Marr called me and said, Steve, 
I'm so excited. Lee wants me to go into the studio and produce him. I said, oh, fantastic, Johnny. He says, is there any, have you got any, um, any hints as to, yeah, you know, advice. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he's a little crap, but he's like probably pound for pound. If you're a boxing analogy, pound for pound. I said, he's the greatest artist I've ever worked with, you know, and I, and I will still go with that pound wow. for pound. If you put, if you put everyone I've ever worked with, with an acoustic guitar, a stool and a microphone and lined up Bono, Dave Matthews, yeah. Jared Leto, Lee yeah. Mavis, blah, blah, blah. Put them all there. He would come just beat out Chris Cornell. Just really? Beat out yeah, he wow. would because he was just fantastic at their primes, you know. Yes, yes. Um, he was really, really amazing. So I said, look, you know, good luck. It's difficult, but I hope, you know, because I'm a fan. At the end of the day, I'm a fan, and I wanted him to be successful. So a week after recording, Johnny calls me up and says, Steve, all he wants to do is to make the first album again. <laughs> he says he doesn't want to record anything new. I'm like, oh, no. He says, you're right. He's, oh, poor man. Poor man putting, putting himself through so much hell. I Instead have no just, idea. You know, instead of just going, okay, it's not perfect, yeah, but I need to move forwards. He never. You know, What's crazy about this story is that the, as you know, there is only one, one expression of the Laws or Lee's artistic vision out there. One album, and it's not even entirely his vision. It's partly your vision because yeah. he couldn't communicate it properly to you. And so I just well, think, man, imagine it that that there's this one beloved album, one one short story, one book, one movie that somebody made, and they chapter. live off that for the yeah, and they live off that forever, and it's not even completely, yeah. you know, holding well, there. The, the thing is, he can live off it forever because yeah, you know can, when, when Sixpence None the Richer cover there's you know it's yeah. like you know yeah. uh, and, and he it. doesn't he doesn't have an expensive lifestyle. Uh, you know, occasionally I think he would go out and do a gig when he got divorced, which is always <laughs> fine. <laughs> yep. You know, but, um, but no, he was oh, sad because, you know, as I say, really, really, as I say, yeah. pound for pound for me, the greatest artist I've ever worked with. Wow. That's crazy. Um, okay. Speaking of, speaking of producers and issues with bands and stuff like that, what's the rush story? Because my understanding is that they wanted you to come produce something for them and you couldn't, or you said you couldn't and the timing didn't work out. And yeah, they well, got it, angry. Was, uh, it was as if you Google Geddy Lee, Steve Lillywhite, it's, okay. uh, you know, he's still, he still is very disappointed. So we were very disappointed with Steve Lillywhite, but as I say, well, what, the, what happened was, is that, you know, rush wanted me to produce them and I went and, saw them and met them and we got on very well and this was in 1983 they were they were a very big band and even to the point where they had the studio booked i flew to the studio we went and and looked to the studio and a, and a, and a month before we were about to start simple minds called to produce our album i went oh yes i'd love to when they said next month i went okay I just got a phone up. You know, it's like Rush was were, were a million times bigger than Simple Minds. But for me, it's like, wow, Simple Minds, I've got to go and do them. And it wasn't my proudest moment, you know, but 
in my defense, it's like, you know, do you really want to have sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex with you? You know, I mean, no. and if I, yeah. if I don't, if I say I don't want to produce your album, you can't force me to, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not a job. It's like this mystical thing that, you know, so the world conspired that I shouldn't in my head that I shouldn't produce Rush, that I should produce Simple Minds. So I, I phoned up the manager and it's pretty much the only time in my career that someone has sort of threatened me with, you won't work ever, you won't work again. There was a little bit of that. Yeah, there was a little yeah. of veiled, veiled um, blacklisting. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, Rush were the biggest rock band in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they were absolutely huge. So, you know, it's like what they want, they get. Yeah. Um, so anyway, look, they found themselves a great producer. It was their biggest album to date. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether I would have made it their biggest album to date. I don't know. Um, so, you know, but, but, but no, Geddy Lee was, you know, I'm, sure. I'm, we're still very disappointed with Steve Lillywhite. Well, what it worked out fine for everybody, I think. Yeah, it, it, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, and um, as I said, I wouldn't want me to produce you if I don't want to produce you. That's the, because I can't, di- I can't dial it in. Make it, yeah, I don't blame you. You know, I, I have to feel honestly passionate about it. And so if you had gone and produced Rush, it just would have been a job. You weren't like. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if I ultimately loved his singing ah uh, mm-hmm. you know and i i, yeah. I love the music was was fantastic incredible musicians and um and i absolutely no i don't i don't want to say anymore i don't want to get yeah okay that's fine with them but but no just a, it's a pity because as i say it would have been a great experience for both of us but i think when i made that decision it was it was the right decision for both yeah. of the bands yep agreed yeah. okay it worked out um, yeah. I want to ask you about Thompson Twins. I know you did one of their earlier albums. I think it was Set. Yes. That, uh, that's, that, that's the album that has Good Gosh on it, which is one of my favorite Thompson <laughs> Twins songs. <laughs> so funny you are so, you are so weird you look like you look like 
Look, okay, listeners, I am. We're, we're, I don't. This isn't going to be a video, is it? This is going to be an audio podcast. Yes. I'm looking at John, who is like the most jock-like man you've ever seen. You know, he's a jock, and he's telling me this weird shit <laughs> about these weird songs that he likes. You are so weird. Okay, so this is the story. <laughs> This is the story of the Thompson Twins. Okay, okay. When I met the Thompson Twins, they were a seven-piece hippie band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seven-piece. Yeah. They had the girls. Matthew Seligman and... has been on here, and he talked about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Died, I, yeah. He died. Well, Yes, he did. Know, COVID. He yeah. He went to visit his brother in hospital who had COVID. He no. caught COVID from his brother in hospital and died. No. no. Yes. Uh, that's what I heard. What a lovely man. My dad died of COVID and he caught it from my mom. And my mom had the really mellow kind and he got it bad and he died. Oh, of it. How old was he? 74. So. 74, but that's still. <clears throat> he had more to go. Anyway, that's it. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Okay. So um, seven piece hippie band. We pretty much finished the album when the, the studio we were working at, got this drum machine called a movement drum machine. And I remember Tom Bailey sitting there making up a, you know, like being obsessed with this thing. And it's like, it was amazing. And we, so he said, I want to do, I've just written a song because based on the, you know, on this drum machine. And it was a song called In the Name of Love. So that became, so we did that, which was completely different to the rest of the album because it it was a dance beat um, because maybe the drummer before was a different style of drummer and didn't have that, you know, that the eighties had. Right. And um, so we recorded this song, uh, it had the rest of the band on mainly, but it was, it was Tom really leading things. And, and the next, so the album came out, it did okay. Apparently, in the name of love was big hit in America, in the dance, in the, in the clubs and stuff. And next thing I knew, Tom had basically fired everyone in the band except the two people who were not really musicians, which was Alana and Joe. I have well, you know, because he just he thought basically, you know, he's never told me this, but 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 I think what I sort of perceive as being the truth is that he thought. Now I've got this drum machine. I can do all the music. Mm-hmm. All I need is an image. Mm-hmm. You've got Alana, who's this, 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 and you've got Joe, who's exotic. You've got Alana, who's like that. This is it. A three-piece called the Thompson Twins. Fantastic. You've got this sort of cartoony thing now. Fair you know, nuts. so 
So yeah. from then on, that's how he, you know, it was it was a it was a bit vicious. I don't know whether they um I think, you know, but he's a lovely guy. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's sometimes sometimes when you've got a vision, uh you you have to go with it. And and mm-hmm. and the moment he saw this drum machine, he got the vision. And and of course, after that, I I'm not an expert on those sorts of records, you know. Right. I've never really made records with drum machines. You know, so so you know they went on and worked with different people, but um, but no, I spoke to him the you know a few a uh, few months ago now, and really? he's back living in New Zealand, and yeah, he's a, he's a lovely. He's, he, he's not with Alana anymore. They've no, they've I got, know. Yeah, they've got a kid. I've been trying to get yeah. him on here for years, and his PR lady doesn't like me, so I I keep getting cock blocked. Didn't you come what back is there on? What's like about you, John? I don't. I haven't quite worked that out. What is there not to like about you? You're so sweet, Steve. Tell everybody that. Whenever anyone gives me pushback, I'm gonna say you don't understand. Steve Lillywhite likes me. Exactly. That's, that's enough, right there. Okay, let's talk about the Talking Heads for a minute. <clears throat> you came on and did Naked. I've had Jerry and Chris on here both, and I was expressing to both of them and. I'm guilty of what you were just talking about a minute ago, Steve, which is when I think of you, I think of the Marshall Crenshaw, Simple Minds, Big Country, Chameleon Sound, and you were trying to get away from that. So when I had Chris on here last year, I said, you know, I've always thought Steve was a really interesting pick as a producer for that Naked album, because to me, that sounds like African rhythms and, you know, very multicultural and exotic. And he was like, oh, Steve's the perfect guy for that. Oh, so surprised me. yeah, I had dinner with Chris about uh, well last time I was in 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 the states about a month ago. Really, and Chris and Tina they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love them. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're just this little old couple now. It's mm-hmm. it's so you know they're, they're probably the longest the longest oh. running couple in in music. No, I mean Bono, Bono and Ali are, are, are pretty much up there, but but Chris yeah. and Tina I think longer. Yeah. So it's it's. Um, yeah, it, that, that, they, 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 and that was so good. You know, it was the last ever Talking Heads album, which is sad. Did you know that going in? I didn't. I think maybe they did. They put all their animosity aside because they're, you know, they're all middle class. And there's the, the thing about the middle classes is that they don't, you know, they have this great ability to 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 to, to cover up any real emotions for the better sake of everything, you know, because they, if you're rich, you don't give a fuck. If you're poor, you don't give a fuck. If you're middle-class, you give a fuck. So you, you, you know, you know what I mean? So no, I didn't really sense any, any animosity. I, I sensed, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, who wouldn't want to be flown to Paris, put in a, put in an apartment and, and for two weeks and, uh, and basically make art because it was not, you know, that, the fact is that there were little snippets of jams that we just extended and turned into songs. Well, we turned, no, there were little snippets of jams from a rehearsal that they did. We then turned those into pieces of music. And then David would go and do his, you know, typical um, scatting singing. And then he would turn those scat singing into lyrics and then it became a song. It became a song at the very end of the process. Got it. You know, that's how those, those, mm-hmm. that style of artist works. Mm-hmm. Now, Bono does it in a way that uh, he has to make sense with his lyric. Mm-hmm. 
David Byrne doesn't think about making, you know, stop making sense. He basically can jam his vocal and just go, oh, that sounds like this word. That sounds like that word. There's your lyric, you know, but it only becomes a song at the very, the moment the singing gets done. Up until that point, it's a piece of work. You know, it's an ongoing. Yeah, it's fluid. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a song because a song has, you know, has, has to have the three parts all together. And you can only call it a song when those three things have been sort of signed off by everybody. That makes sense. So that album is kind of a return to that African sound. They did in Remain of Light, Remain in Light, a little bit in Speaking in Tongues, but then it kind of, they get more poppy after that. When you're working on that, is it, is jam, you were talking about the jamming, is them jamming in African style, is that their natural state? Did you collectively say, we want to get back to African rhythms on this one? No, but we had um, African uh, percussion players and, and people. Oh, true. Yeah, that's true. Coming Because we wanted to do it in Paris because of the, uh, not, not, not because we wanted them to sound like Charles Aznavour or Johnny Halliday. No, it was the French African countries, Ivory Coast, the ones that only spoke French, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and of course, that led to some, obviously... Uh, some some quite funny funny things but uh, no it was it was again it was it was a wonderful process and then we went to New York to finish it off and you know I think nothing but flowers is still something I can listen to now and go wow that's uh that's a, a pretty damn good good track it's lovely first half of that album feels thought out with clear songs and the second half feels more like the jammy stuff to me but yeah there's 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 some definite sludgy stuff yeah it's less focused that second yeah less focused less focused sometimes that sort of sure i mean a bit like like your picture behind you that's less focused (laughs) but it works you see it's true Girl, I'll turn it off that, so you can that, see my laundry room in full. Whoops, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Let's is see. that even you? Is that you on that picture? Yeah, that's me. God, you look so much older than you are now. <laughs> oh, there is. I just no, turned 49 two weeks ago. So I'm. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, so you. I love the fact that you're, you see, it looks like it's there's this, this incredible product placement because the only thing of color is the box of Tide. And you did that on purpose, didn't no, you? No, I work out of the laundry room. That's why I blur the background <laughs> so no one can see that. <laughs> uh, but but there's no color. There's only I know. Uh, grays and whites. Well, the, is, it's kind of a sky blue. You can't really tell. But yeah, no, I can't see that. I just has think, t- black subway yeah, tile. I, I, yeah. I don't see. All I see is white. And uh, there you go. 
There Fantastic. you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One last thing. Did you notice a division within the band? Was it always kind of Dave, like you were saying about Keith and Mick, is it Dave, David being his, his own kind of mercurial self and everybody else sort of a rotating around Dave? What's well, his mood today? How do we deal with Dave today? No, not really. I mean, Chris and Tina were always together mm-hmm. because they were, you know, they, 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 because they're married, yeah. you know, so that's 50% on one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry was always sort of not dithery, but just, you know, he neither way. And David, so if there was ever anything, you know, but, but, but Tina's got, Tina has this incredible ability to, 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 oh, well, you know, Steve, blah, 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 blah. And she can say something really cutting but in such a lovely way, you know, it's like, oh, wow, Tina, you, that that's sense. a, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I won't go into anything. No, she's lovely and they, and they're yeah. great, but. Okay. Um, Just curious you know. what the dynamic was. Um, yeah, okay. but, no, it, but, but it was great actually, because everyone wanted the best record because, you know. Of course. And they did well. Um, okay. Let's talk about XTC. You were there for the, the big ones. Um, drums and well, fires, white music. Black no, Sea. Not white music, drums and wires and black sea. Okay. But John Leckie Internet. did white. John Leckie did white music. Okay. Um, no, I I got them when they uh, had got um, they they changed personnel. One key member of the band, uh, they had a keyboard player, and they decided to get rid of, uh, or he decided to leave a guy called Barry Andrews, and they brought in Dave Gregory. David Gregory, who is uh, a great old school guitar player mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden it's i think it may have it enabled the the, the the sonic balance of the band to be really balanced mm-hmm. because and, and i learned a lot from that the idea that if you have two guitar players they need to play off each other mm-hmm. and and post xdc I, I don't think i would ever even consider working with a band where the two guitar players played the same thing. Mm, it's like, no, you've got to, you know, this is, that, that, that sound, that if you play the same thing, it's such laziness. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got two players. So what you've got with, with XTC, you, you just put Andy in the left and Dave in the right, and you've got this one, you can choose who to listen to. You've got the bass sort of through the middle and this lovely big wide drum sound and it became this sort of well-balanced sound, you know, whereas with the keyboards, it didn't quite have that sort of balance in there. So I was, you know, very lucky. It was a great time to to work with them. I've always said it was, they were probably the easiest albums I've ever made because at the time I was, you know, uh, I I was also working with U2, you know, so uh, U2 was like pulling teeth on their first, even on their first album, when you're supposed to have all the songs written, you know, I mean, I realized that Bono hadn't finished second verses. It's like, what's that? You know, oh, well, I haven't quite finished the lyric on that. And he'd been playing the songs for a year, you know, and but he would just make up the words. Each night would be different. So, um, so he, you know, finally, when it becomes an album, you have to commit because there's no such thing as improvising because right. once you've improvised it once, it becomes the norm. You know, yes. it's not like it sounds different every time you listen to the album. So, um, you know, they, they, Andy would have all the lyrics done. Everything was prepared, all the parts. 
pretty much the arrangements were were completely locked in. I mean, a pleasure to record, two weeks recording, two weeks overdubbing, and two weeks mixing. You know, in were a they playing st- live at that point, or had they given up that part of that? No, no, no. They hadn't given up at that point. They gave up playing live. I can't remember how many. When it was 80, 81, and I guess drums and wires is what, 79? Yeah. Okay. Was it 81 they stopped touring? I remember something like that. There there, there is actually a, um, there's a very blurry video on YouTube that has the moment of Andy walking off stage. And that's the literally the last time he's, he's, uh, yeah, the last time he played. And Yeah. yeah, it's such a pity because, you know, in Andy, you would have had a brilliant band. Yes. Absolutely yes. brilliant. Andy and Colin together, because Colin wrote, you know, Sergeant Rock, Making Plans for Night. You know, Colin was great. Not so, uh, not so, um, he wouldn't write so many songs, but he made sure that the songs that he wrote were great. So having the two of them, you know, it was, you were getting up to this sort of unique thing. And it really was. And, 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 and I think probably because he, they stopped touring, they missed out on their chance of, agree. of cementing legendary status. I agree. You know, yeah. When I had they Dave. Have, they're, they're at the top of the cult status. Yes. Thing, but, Perfect. But, but in terms of the flipping it over into commercial, into the big leagues, yeah. they didn't quite. And they were so much more talented than than most of the bands in the big leagues you know I believe it when i had david on here a few years ago he expressed some well, frustration there's a lot of drama between those three mostly colin and andy as you probably know and yeah david wasn't was never entirely sure whether andy really was it was really stage fright or something else but we were just saying he and i were commiserating on what an odd band experience that was because they weren't that band that was together, you know, jamming in a garage and friends and going up through the ranks together. It was kind of calling over here and Andy over here and Dave's in the middle, just going wherever anyone tells yeah. them to go. And anyway, I've always, and they, and and they also, that they, if they had kept playing live, they could be out there now making millions of bucks, you know, oh, literally they could be yes. doing Madison Square Garden now. Yeah. No yeah. question. And, you know, and they also, had this sort of, oh, we're from Swindon. We're not really from the city. We're just country folk. We are less than. So they had definitely had this inferiority complex. But, you know, they were, before Andy got dark in, in some of his ways of thinking, they were, you know, they were a, a beacon of light. They were fantastic. I love them. As I say, I yeah, to- so great. I want to ask you specifically about one of their songs, Complicated Game. And the reason I ask about that one is because it feels like something that would have fully blossomed in the studio. That whole last section of the of the song is kind of like <laughs> repeated. Yes, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah.
Those field okay. emails are obviously kind of like studio tricks. I never yeah. know if someone like Andy comes in and says, I have a big idea for this song, hear me out. Or if you're there Pretty like much. you are with Morris, Morrissey saying, I have the idea, hear me out. How does it work? Right. He, uh, well, on Complicated Game, I remember, I think the music was pretty much there. But when it came to doing the vocal, he wanted us to play the echo while he was singing. Um, So we fed that in, you know, and as the song went on, we would feed the echo in more. And he only did the singing once because it was just, it was too much. I could see that. You know. Because it starts out so small and it ends up so frantic that um that 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 yeah, it was just it was a one take. I mean, but again, you know, never any problems recording them. Good. Yeah. I love good. them. Um, since you two came up, I want to ask one more thing. When we first connected, you would mention when I said I lived in Denver, and you're like, Oh, I recorded an album with you two out in Colorado, as if that's not a big deal under the blood red sky. And right. I was thinking about that, getting ready to talk to you again. And I thought, what's that? If that concert hadn't been shot or filmed, right. and if it hadn't been filmed the way it was filmed, filmed yeah. it would just be another concert. Like oh, something well, about, I, I wonder, yeah. you tell me if seeing, if the camera being down here and seeing Bono come up and do the march and the white flag and the, the fire on Red Rocks, you know, up on the mountains and stuff. I've been and there a couple of times in the last few yeah. weeks for shows. And yeah. uh, I just thought if you weren't visually seeing visuals that match the sense of the, the morality of a song like Sunday Bloody Sunday, is the impact going to be the same? And I don't know that it would have been. Absolutely not. It was just one of those wonderful tipping points in time where you know the, the the band were not huge uh and they they gambled on filming this show uh, and they booked a helicopter you know there were no drones in those days to do those aerial shots and you know booking helicopters expensive you know to fly over so it was probably it was it was literally maybe 20 minutes before the show started that they pressed the button to say it was going to start you know and and, and even at that point they'd offered everyone um tickets for a makeup show so people who were at red rocks already had been told that if it's cancelled at any point you can come to this next show the next day or two days later or something uh which they 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 did you know um, but but the rains literally stopped just in time for the show to start. And I think they probably started again after the show. So you just got this. It was, you know, some would say it was God helping Bono, giving yeah. Bono a hand. I mean, I think it's just the wonderful randomness of life of that, uh, that threw that up. Yeah. You know? yeah. And um, and it was it was it was. And you were there physically. At Red Rocks. I was I was uh, I was in a mobile recording unit okay. downstairs. But to be honest, I I remember being down there and and making sure that it was being recorded okay, and because uh, that was my job. That's why I was there. They were paying me to 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 make sure the recording was was to you know to, to, to good quality stuff, yeah. uh, and after like two three or four songs i was going yeah this is sounding good i said to the engineer you okay here and he goes yeah i'm okay i said okay i'm going up to watch because it was so good <laughs> so i actually went and stood on the side of the stage and uh 
and, wow. and, and so on. And I, you know, that's the only time I've been to Red Rocks, and I absolutely loved it. I would. Um, wow, you got to come back. Tell me if you do. I, I just went and saw Kraftwerk there two weeks ago, I think. And oh, awesome. Yeah, I try to go a few times every summer. They're the, it's the best venue in the world. Yeah, I was. It, it's just the filming of that particular song and playing it on MTV. That's just some grand myth making in all of it. Absolutely. The, yeah. You know, the, yeah. Merge, the merging of the song and the environment and the band playing it all in that one time made it all sound so important. And they've been important ever since. They created their legend in that moment, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, speaking yeah. of U2's legend, you were involved, though, in their turn off the dark Broadway stuff, right? Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man. Um, yes, it was, well, I was I was brought in like halfway through when it was considered that it was uh you know, it was arrogance on everybody's part. Mm-hmm. It was arrogance on the band's part thinking that they could change Broadway mm-hmm. but not and 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 Julie Taymor it was arrogance on, you know. I mean, it was it was just this shows my 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 wonderful belief in randomness. Mm-hmm. The randomness that that turned the Red Rock show into such all the wonderful things that all landed heads. You know, it was like a hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, it all just landed perfectly for the band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They all landed the opposite way round for Spider Man. Um, now, was there? I I, I do believe that. There were things that people could have done, you know, to, 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 to really, there is no Broadway musical that's been successful without the songwriters being there all the time, changing things and evolving the music with the, with the thing and it moving together as one, one beast. And I think that was not considered necessary, you know, and it's still the point that there's never been a successful Broadway musical where that hasn't been the case. It was sad because it, it you know, that I loved working on that because it was Broadway is like this village. You know, you yeah. get there in the afternoon and and the people who work the hardest are the, are the, are the cast members, you know, because they have, you know, one scene they're dancing in uniform, the next scene they're dancing with huge you know, I mean, it's just, and then they have to, it's such a, 
such a physically draining um, thing, as well as mentally, when you've got to remember your lines and remember where it goes. And, and, and the union have got such a strong hand on the, uh, on, on the musicians. The musicians, literally, if there's need for two guitars on one song, they don't even get the one guitarist. To, I mean, they get another guitarist. You know, so um, <laughs> it's never not one guy just overdubbing or whatever they need. Yeah, yeah, or to or even and like making do, you know, no, no, we need another player. Okay. Yeah. Get another. So, you know, he could be playing on three songs every <laughs> night, just sitting there, you know, getting union. Yeah. You know, There's the guy that does it, the crash symbols. Yeah, exactly. He does it like it, twice every night and that's it. The rest of the time he just sits there. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what the, the, oh, it was, but you know, great fun. And, and it was, Oh, it was embarrassing when when I I must have seen that show fifty times, Oof. and it never once finished. And I have no I had no idea what it was about. I mean, it was so convoluted. Oh, you know, it's, it's a like shame. yeah. No, 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 it was a shame that 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 all people involved didn't love Broadway. Weirdly, that was the thing. Okay. No one, no one really loved Broadway. Mm. You know. Julie Taymor loved art movies and, and, uh, and, and Bono and Edge, you know, they rock and roll, you know, no one, no one sort of thought Broadway was cool. So they were trying to reinvent Broadway and, and ultimately Broadway wouldn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, it's, it's sad, but I mean, you know, that's happened. I was trying to think it's sad that U2 has this kind of blemish on their record, but so does Sting. So does Paul Simon. So oh, many yeah. of them have tried and failed. Elton John yeah, did it, but not all, you know, not many do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, everyone wants to do it. You know why? Because it's free money. No, oh, that's probably true. You don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, Elton John's making a bloody fortune from The Lion King. Every night, I went to see The Lion King again. I love The Lion King. It's, really? it's, oh, it's the greatest story ever told. Yeah. I mean, any parent will love The Lion King because it's this whole, and boys as well, because boys are so frightened and, you know, and when boys become men and the whole sort of stoic thing that that we have to go through if we want to be a real man. But, oh, it's just, uh, you know, I, I I go to The Lion King for fun. Wow. Isn't that I've weird? never seen it. I mean, I've seen You've the never seen it. not on Broadway. Yeah, but next, no. next time, oh, next time you're in New York, Go to Broadway, buy yourself some tickets, get some great tickets at the front, and you you won't be disappointed. It's it's the music is spectacular, the costumes are amazing. It's everything that that makes Broadway great is in that is in that musical. Okay, I will. There you go. I want to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I just got a couple left. Ultravox, okay. the Ha album. I'm I'm embarrassed oh. to say I'm a huge mid year fan. And so I've only ever really paid attention to the Midge albums. Getting ready to talk to you. I'm sure I had heard those earlier ones, but they didn't make an impression on me. Rock Rock, the first track on that <laughs> Ha 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 album, is right. one of the craziest, coolest things I've ever heard.
What was it like working with Ultravox back then? They were more of a punk group than they, yes. be, you know, and then eventually became the synth pop. Okay. Well, they were my first. Uh, I was a, a um, an engineer in a studio, mm-hmm. but I was. Uh, for, for, for various reasons at weekends if if the studio wasn't being used i was this was back in 1977 if the studio wasn't being used i could go into the studio and do my own projects to learn how to be an engineer because i wasn't an engineer i was a as a t-boy an assistant so i got this um introduction with this band who were called tiger lily and uh eventually changed their name to to um to ultravox and i did a bunch of uh demos with them at my studio now they got signed to island records and island records said okay who do you want to produce and they said well we loved working with steve who did these demos they said okay great but you know he doesn't we don't know who he is who else and they said well we love roxy music they said okay well, we'll get brian eno so my first album credit was produced by brian eno Ultravox and Steve Lillywhite oh. in that order. I actually got, you know, so, but, but Brian, if you know, Brian, Brian's never in the studio all the time. That's I mean, he's right. fantastic, but he only comes in, does his thing, then goes because yeah. music. Is- he's more conceptual. Yeah. 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 Music is too boring for him. I mean, he's like, likes to fix the world's problems and stuff like that. Um, so, so we did the first album and um, you know, it, it got, Good reviews. And then they wanted to do a second album. So I, I did that. Uh, it was good. I, a little side note, my daughter, who is um, who is now sporting a mullet of 80s Bono. I, I mean, I should, I, should, I should send a picture to Bono of her mullet. It's the thing that he's been embarrassed about for the last 20 years. Right. Because he's always talking about how embarrassing he was. Right. Now... It's completely turned round. You know, people have those 80s mullets. And I've seen she them. looks yes. so cool. I, I, you know, so yeah. Uh, but, but her favourite song is a song called Hiroshima Mon Amour. Ooh. On, on that Ha 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 album. Yes. You ever hear Young Savage? Yes, by um No, it's by Ultravox. Yes. I was I had Richard Jobson on here last year and they did the Skids did a covers album and they did a cover of Young Savage on their covers album. Oh right, okay. That's what, well, that's what made me think of the it. Ultravox version is fantastic. It is I, I, I really um yes. I really 
really dug recording that. I don't think that was on an album. That's why I said, have you heard it? Yes. I think that, it was a standalone single. You know, that was my first ever recording. And um, John and Fox, had... what was he like? Was he kind John of the, the owner, the, the kingpin of the band at that yeah, point? Yeah, he was. And um, and I don't know why he decided to leave the band uh, after three albums, because then they worked on their third album with a, they went more electronic mm-hmm. with a guy called Connie Plank, who was a fantastic German He I think he produced Kraftwerk in those. Oh, he, he did a lot of those early Germanic, synth pop that so that so influenced Depeche Mode and 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 all those sort of bands yeah but John Fox real name Dennis mm-hmm. you know but uh, he wanted to have this sort of I'm a robot type <laughs> sort of half man half robot type persona which was fantastic you know and yeah. he's still you know he's uh he's older than me now so he's probably wow. approaching 70 years old and oh um in great form. He's yeah. still out there and he did, his solo work is great. I like yeah, he, his stuff. Yeah, it is good. You know, he's yeah. um he's probably better suited being a solo artist. That's probably and, true. you know, I I Mitch is a lovely man. There's yes. no question about it. He's he's a he's a he's a he's one of the good people in in the music business, you know, and he's always been very nice to me. Um but you know, my my loyalties always later uh, are always with my version of Ultra. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I understand that. Of course. <laughs> I just saw Midge was here uh, with Howard Jones just a couple of weeks ago, and I went to that show. Two of the, I would say there's so much niceness mm-hmm. between those two guys. I've interviewed they both. Are, they're two of the nicest people in the world. Oh, it's they're horribly nice. <laughs> it's almost like, come on, you need a little bit of Johnny Rotten in here. Just a little bit of Johnny Rotten. You know, just a little Leiden. A little Leiden would 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 do you well. Oh, uh, they're know. just gentlemen. They're just kind. People. Oh, they are, aren't they? Um, yeah. Well, same as Tom Bailey. Tom Bailey no, is good. Good, he, good he, to know. Lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. Okay, I got two left. Uh, you tell me if there's so it's psychedelic furs and Dave Matthews. And Dave okay. Matthews, I was purposely sa- saving to the end because I know that's a hairy one. No, I mean I've I've done a lot of Dave Matthews interviews, so let me just do. I'll just do psychedelic furs, and we'll be okay. Okay. We can be on our way. Uh, uh, Psychedelic Furs, yeah, another band with two brothers, like the Lars. Mm-hmm. The Lars had two brothers who fought each other. Psychedelic Furs had two brothers who fought each other. But, you know, their, 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 their catchphrase was beautiful chaos. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. You know, they were a, I think, six-piece band. And it was just, 
weirdly it was it was in the punk era and punk was all about you know the the, the, the psychedelic furs version of punk and the xtc version of punk were so very different you know xtc were much more sharply focused yes. and every note was there for a purpose psychedelic first was a chaotic noise well there were certain sort of themes that they would play but but it was like long sort of jammy really it was it was punk in attitude but there not you go. Yep. as music you know they, they they were great i um i think it may have been one of the few albums where i've done two where the second one was better than the first one mm. talk talk uh, talk being talk, better talk, than talk. The- than the, than the first psychedelic first album i seem to remember although sister europe i've really loved um but i think what was in this talk talk for into you like a train dumb waiters yeah you know is that pretty in pink's on that one too pretty in pink is on that yeah to say and, and and the band to a member will will agree that 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 my version of that song is much better than the re-recording you know which i'm very proud of i but yeah it's uh the the, the band were not into doing it you know and i don't know why it was re-recorded i uh so someone I mean, it's could... to capitalize on a commercial moment though you know i mean that's yeah better or worse in the states anyway that's one of their bigger yeah moments i guess and so if yeah, you're gonna, yeah. Well, up it's an old song to prop it up to be a new thing, fresh yeah. new thing. Why not? I guess. No, absolutely. Although you know, I I I much preferred that version of the uh, psychedelic furs than the sort of love my way, which was it's a lovely song. But when they when they got too much into the synths, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose they had to evolve, and they and they sort of looked at where David Bowie was going, and they wanted to evolve in that way you yeah. know but um but i thought they were best when they were the sort of snarling visceral yeah. noise you know i think his vocals worked best against that yeah. rather than his vocals working against a a really lush synthesizers. yeah sizes you know i can hear that yeah. everyone has their own taste true okay so we're gonna keep we're gonna skip over dm the dave matthews band if people want to know that story they can go look it up it's yeah there's I've, I've talked about them a lot i get it i get it did you move to jakarta because you went to work for kentucky fried chicken like no. apparently K- kentucky fried chicken you can buy cds there 
kind of like yeah. you would in a but Starbucks let, or something. Okay, well, no, slightly different. But I, uh, I, I was living in LA in Hollywood, and I just started to get this thing that 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 I didn't want to be there. Uh, and I had this thing about Asia, and I thought, I, at some point in my life, I want to experience Asia. So someone eventually invited me to Singapore to give a keynote speech at a music conference. And I was so excited. I, I flew to Singapore. And it was not the Asia that I was expecting. But, you know, Singapore is like um, Disneyland, mm. you know, but that was not the sort of place I wanted to be. But I made connections at this music conference that led me to go to South Korea, led me to go to Thailand and to China. Each one of those places, there was always something about them that that I didn't think I liked, you know. Too industrialized, too modern. Well, it was like, say, in Thailand, it was like the just purely down to the fact that the writing was, I couldn't understand it. Yeah. It wasn't our our font you know it wasn't a, an our alphabet yeah you know china it. it was too big and i hated the sound of people's voices mm. sound has something for me then i was invited to come to indonesia to produce one of their household names you know uh, a band called noah and i came here and it was like the moment i i was in the studio and i was and it was pissing down with rain and it was everyone was smoking it was smelly and and I suddenly thought, I like this place. So I decided to stay for a few months and did some producing. But then I got offered this job. And as a producer, to get a salary is something that is the holy grail because, you know, you don't get salaries very often. And um, so I got this job at KFC, which is basically they bundle CDs with uh, with chicken. And, and when I started, we were selling about 400,000 CDs a month across about 10 titles. It wasn't my idea, but yeah. but the guy whose idea it was was the uh, he decided to leave. So I took over, and I sort of built up the business, and we we went into doing some DVDs as well, all local content, you know, and and very cheap as well because in Indonesia KFC is a is a destination restaurant, mm. you know, it's okay. actually it's you know they have coffee shops in their kfcs here they have they have children's playgrounds sometimes they have a stage where a band play it's much more high okay you know very clean and very and and the chicken is great they serve it with rice they serve it spicy and uh and it's become huge it's like if you say to any indonesian person what's your favorite fried chicken they say kfc because they there's no pork because 90 percent muslim so pork is not really anywhere yeah um and beef is is not just in their culture so they know chicken and they love chicken so yeah i've built it up and before covid we were selling about a million cds a month then covid it it collapsed because everything stopped and and you know most people when i started not everyone had a smartphone now they're getting um you know people are getting wise i'm selling people what they can get for nothing and the only thing is, is that they people have a trust of the music they they get at KFC is music that they that they will like. You know, okay. it's like uh-huh. so. I try and cater for every member of the family. I don't, you know, and it's all Indonesian products. So it's it's been great for me to to learn a whole different culture, 
you know, they have their own stars, they have their own scandals, they have that, you know, it's, it's a whole infrastructure here. Wow. They have their own winners of Idol and stuff yeah. like that. You know, so it's... Um, I've always heard that uh, Asians, and when I say Asians, I guess I'm thinking primarily of like Japanese, Chinese, I don't know, are right. still very much collectors of tangible product. They will, like I've anybody I have on here who's like a yacht rock person, they right. have huge audiences in Asia and those people buy all their albums. And you always hear of an album only coming out in Japan or something like that. Right. You find that the people well, of, of no, Indonesia it's are different. similar? It's slightly like, different in Indonesia. In Japan, okay. it's it's collectible. Here, ah. it's, more, it's more disposable. Okay. It, it, it's more like CDs used to be when they were okay. cheap. You know, like 30 bucks for a CD in Japan. And people ah. will spend that because they have money. You know, or the or the 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 collector's vinyl and stuff like that. But um, no, eventually, and I think for the environment, it'll be good to get rid of CDs because yeah. you know they they are all made of very what well, becoming more and more expensive uh, materials. You know, I still so, collect them though. I have like twenty five hundred CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's bad. It. Uh, yeah. I should collect vinyl, but I'm sure I would just spend every penny we own on weird money. records. <laughs> so, what's your job, John? You can I work for a software company. I'm in sales with a software company. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. How's business? Yeah. Good? It's good. I mean, it. Uh, I'm not a technical person at all, but I've been in this industry now for 17 years or something. And I, I do it because I like the standard of living, you know? We make a good living and there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. you know, and I can do stuff. I can interview you and make uh, good living, uh, you know, doing my yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. You got great. kids and stuff. You got to think about that. So oh, one absolutely. last question for you. Did you discover MGMT? Oh, well, I don't know. I, 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 I helped, you know, if, if my name was Clive Davis, I would say absolutely. Yes. But no, I was part of the, you know, I, I had someone come to me and say, "There's this band. Can you meet them? I want to uh, sign them." When right. I was at when I was at Columbia, and I and uh -huh. I met with them and and my A and R girl, and we had a couple of meetings with the band. And uh -huh. I said to her, you, "You like them?" I said. She said, "Yeah, I love them." I said, "Yeah, I think they're good too. Yeah, let's sign them." Mm. That was it. that was that it. Was you it. know, I I allowed the situation to occur. You could have vetoed it though, and we'd never know MGMT. Right. I know, and and that's another bunch of underachievers. Yes, oh my God. very much. You know, so. one one classic album, and then disappeared up their own fucking. That is so true. I, yeah. I, I love that you said it that way. That's exactly what that is. Yes. <laughs> okay. Last question: Who have you not produced that you would want to produce? And when I ask that question of producers, I don't mean like who do you like. I mean when you listen to somebody and you think, I think I could really make them sound great or better or different. Who is that? Oh, uh, it it's all depends on the time. I, um, you know, I would love to have produced The Clash in 1983. There you go. Yeah. Ooh, they could have used you. Well, oh, I think yes. I could have. I always felt that, that, that Mick Jones and Joe Strummer's vocals were never recorded well enough. Mm. The vocals always sounded weedy on Clash mm. records. Mm. And I, I felt like I could make them sound a bit more professional. Uh, I saw The Strokes live before mm. the album came out. Mm. And they were like one of the greatest gigs I've ever seen. I thought, oh, my God. So I couldn't wait for the album. The album came out and it was like, oh, this is not, you know, I don't often get this feeling that I could have done better because I don't 
ever think like that. But yeah, the Strokes' first album, I absolutely thought, shit, I should have gone for wow. that. Oh wow! And uh, and and the and the Clash, and you know, obviously David Bowie around Hunky Dory. And, I wondered. And, I mean, yeah, that's you know that that was when I was seventeen and in love with David Bowie in a purely heterosexual way. I get it. I get it. You know, Were but, you but, not ever invited to come in and do something with Bowie though? I would imagine. I, did, you would I have. think I, I did a little bit of mixing, and 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 when I was at Columbia Records, I was his A and R guy. Oh, okay. Well, I was told, you know, go and meet with David. We need to get an album. And and he wasn't that interested in doing an album at the time, mm. you know, but I went and had tea with him. It was just after he'd had his quadruple bypass, which oh. was not very well publicized. Not many people know he That's had quadruple true. bypass. Ooh. And this was a few years before he died, but, um, you know, because he was a... Okay. For most of his life, and he only he stopped was, heavy smoker. Yes, heavy he was smoker. awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even when he gave up the drugs, he was heavily into the smoking. But yeah, but yeah, he was. It was a bit weird, you know. It's like he, oh, he was so much my hero. And then when you meet him, it's like you're too normal. <laughs> he was actually too normal for. I could me, see that. Like, yeah, yeah. Which you know, he's my number see- one. And anytime I ever have anybody on here who's worked with him. Everybody just says nice. Th- well, almost everybody. One guy, James Williamson of the Stooges, didn't like David Bowie. But other than that, everybody oh. loves Bowie and says what a charming gentleman he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, okay. You- Steve, if you can't tell, I love you more than most people who have ever walked this earth. <laughs> Thank you for being you. Well, thank you thank for you. being so, so gracious. All right. So there you go. Steve Lillywhite, parts one and two. Gang, I think everyone knows this is one of the biggest moments of my life. I love Steve more than just about anybody. And uh, he's definitely had a hand in more of my favorite favorite music ever than anybody else has. And uh, to be able to talk to him, he's such a fun great engaging storyteller and a funny guy that's the that's just it it's not just that i get to ask steve the questions it's that i get to hear steve's answers which are better which are fantastic he's a legend a legend in my book now uh if i have one more regret it's that we didn't quite get to Susie and the banshees steve produced their very first single hong kong garden which you're listening to here i wanted to get to that again it just it felt like he had given me already almost three hours of his time, and uh, we should probably leave it at that. So maybe we'll get to it another day. But anyway, I wanted to leave you with some Susie and the Banshees because, of course, I love them too. Huge thanks to Yan the Man for everything. Huge thanks to Steve Lillywhite, one of the greatest there's ever been. Thank you, Steve. This really meant the world to me. And I could tell by the download numbers that this is meaning a lot to all of you because this is an extremely popular episode already at least part one was anyway um thanks everybody of course come back on tuesday as i said we're going to be going to minneapolis we're going to be talking with somebody who swam in the prince ocean if you will so we get to talk some prince a lot of funk a lot of minneapolis next time we'll talk to you soon